0: They're in a state of hysteria about the election of Trump that uh, just knows no bounds. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guy, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
1: Meow, meow, my Liberty kittens. We're glad to have you here for another great conversation about the ideas of liberty. In this episode, the 285th episode of this program, that means you can find the show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 285. And there is no shortage of great conversations about the ideas of liberty here on your Lions of Liberty podcast feed. You've got this program, The Flagship, every single Monday here, where I'll have interviews with all sorts of names from in and out of the liberty movement as well as the occasional roundtable. In fact, we'll have another one coming for you in a week, another edition of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, so look forward to that. But I, of course, encourage you to tune into all our great shows here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed, including Brian McWilliams' weekly look at comedy, culture, and liberty every Wednesday with Electric Liberty Land, as well as John Odermatt's weekly look at the broken criminal justice system Every Friday on Felony Friday. And if you enjoy the work we're doing on these aforementioned shows, I'd like to encourage you to help support the program. You can find out just how to do that by heading over to lionsofliberty.com support. Over there, you'll find all the information you need about how to become a patron of this program, a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride and you can really help us grow this program. That's what our biggest goal here in 2017 is to do, is to get this program out to more people out there, into more of those earbuds out there. And with your help, we plan to do just that. So, again, head over to lionsofliberty.com support and join the pride. Today's guest is making his second appearance on this program, having first appeared way back in episode 11, where he discussed his book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. He is a legendary political advisor and pundit known for working closely with many Republican presidents, ranging from Richard Nixon to Ronald Reagan to our current president, Donald Trump. He is most recently the author of The Making of a President, 2016, How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution. I am pleased to welcome... Mr. Roger Stone. Roger, are you ready to roar?
0: I am really ready to roar because I'm outraged about the claim that representatives from Donald Trump's presidential campaign met with or colluded with or had contact with agents of the Russian state. It is a damnable lie, and my book talks about it, and I'm ready to talk about it.
1: Well, great. Well, let's, let's waste no time then. Let's start right there. Why do you think there is this concerted attempt, and it's been going on since even before the election, to connect Donald Trump to Vladimir Putin, to Russia? There's been claims of hacking this whole time. I've, I've still yet to see evidence, despite these claims. What is behind this concerted effort to sort of paint Trump as essentially an envoy of the Russian government?
0: Uh, I think Trump is a threat to the central intelligence agencies and the intelligence agencies who have been rogue for some time, who are aligned with the neocons, who have marched us off to endless war, while eroding our civil liberties and uh, driving us bankrupt, and Donald Trump threatens that order—the so-called Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama new world order—where you know their policies are crashing, uh, and they're losing power, and they're near hysterical. Uh, th- this is a this is a vile smear. Donald Trump got himself elected president. He did not get elected with the help of Vladimir Putin or the Russians. Were the Russians hacking? Probably. So were the Chinese, most likely the Saudis, the Israelis for sure, probably the North Koreans, and who knows who else. That's what happens when Hillary Clinton uses an unsecure server.
1: Roger, you mentioned the central intelligence and, and our intelligence community overall as being rogue, and, and that really does tie into your larger body of work with your work looking into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You've also, you're, you're not really partisan in your criticisms. You've, you've gone after the Clinton family. You've gone after the Bush family. And it kind of makes sense that you'd be aligned with Donald Trump because these are the same exact targets that he has been going after. Uh, so, I mean, how was Donald Trump able to overcome basically the, this rogue element, as you describe it in our government, the intelligence agency? And, and what kind of battle does he have ahead of him over the next few years?
0: Well, the real question, of course, is how is he able to overcome the certain nominee and anointed one, Jeb Bush? Because we all knew he was next in line. He had the money. He had the, the press clippings. Uh, he had the pedigree and the name. You know, his mother was too ill to attend Nancy Reagan's funeral, but she wasn't too ill to stump in New Hampshire for Jeb. So how did Trump take on that machine, which is, let's face it, the Bushes have had a stranglehold on the money in the Republican Party for some time. Uh, And the answer is citizen outrage. And I think 30 years of bad decisions is finally catching up with the ruling elite. People are fed up with the Bush-Clinton, Bush-Clinton thing. That was too much for them. This is not a country where we have dynasties. We have presidents. And Trump broke, broke us out of that. And also people are – they're very angry, and they want to send a message, and they want somebody to crack heads and make things happen because they're very frustrated. Trump read this, and he flooded the primaries with new voters. Almost 4 million more Republicans voted for Donald Trump in all primaries combined than voted for the great Ronald Reagan.
1: Now, is that why you refer to Trump's victory as a revolution, because he was able to overcome, I mean, really multiple dynasties in one fell swoop, the Bushes as well as the Clintons, and bring a lot of people that were disenchanted with the political process into the voting booth?
0: Well, I guess in the context of a campaign, but the real revolution needs to come now. In other words, are we going to continue to be a government of more spending and borrowing? Are we going to be continue to be a government of of waste and fraud? Are we going to continue to be a a government that is, when it comes to foreign policy, either incompetent or, are we going to continue to help our enemies and undercut our friends? You know, these are all. I mean, he's got a he's got a tall order here to reverse thirty years of decline, and he's going to have to to come out against a number of you know, sacred cows uh, in order to do so. I mean, he's talking about restoring Glass-Steagall, for example, the, which, you know, uh, an egregious mistake in banking law that triggered one of the greatest financial crises this country's ever had. Uh, he is going to tackle the problems with Dodd-Frank and other financial legislation. He's going to cut taxes. He's going to cut corporate taxes. He's going to bring back trillions of dollars that are offshore for taxation. Uh, fair taxation. I mean, I think he has the potential to be a great president. That's the real revolution. But he certainly has sparked a political revolution because I estimate that Hillary Clinton and her allies spent pretty close to $2 billion. The notorious left-wing hitman, uh, David Brock, spent $30 million. Most of it attacking me. has nothing to show for it, it was ignominiously defeated. And now he's out with a bunch of new, rich, dumb left-wing donors trying to raise $40 million to impeach Donald Trump, who, as we both know, has committed no impeachable offense.
1: It's amazing to me that, I I mean, people were talking about impeachment, not even on day one, before day one. I mean, people were talking about trying to impeach him and stop him from from being inaugurated, even.
0: Well, I was on an elevator today, and a woman was wearing a big button that said, not my president. And she saw me looking at it, and she kind of (laughs) grinned. And I said— you know, I know exactly how you feel. That's how I felt about Obama. I don't think she was pleased. <laughs> so,
1: that. Now, Roger, let's stick let's back the clock a little bit here because you've known Donald Trump for quite a long time. So can you tell us a little bit about something you, you do touch on in the book? And that's how you first, the first time you encountered Donald Trump, how did you come across him? And what, what were your impressions of him the first time you met him?
0: Uh, I was sent to New York in 1979 to organize Governor Ronald Reagan's campaign for President of the United States uh, in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And I was introduced to Donald by the notorious lawyer, Roy Cohn, that right now people uh, on the Twitter feed are all, the liberals are all mashing their teeth. That name just drives them insane. He is uh, obviously uh, a controversial character from the, from the 50s to the 70s. And anyway, he was representing Donald as attorney at that time. He was a very powerful power broker in New York, and a Democrat, by the way. And I was immediately taken by Trump's size. I don't mean his physical size. I mean, it's like his command presence. It's more than charisma. It's almost magnetism. He's very tall. He's very broad-shouldered. He's got a very infectious smile. And the truth is, he can talk easily to anyone. There's nothing stilted or snobby or stiff about him he's a regular guy
1: do you think that's really one of trump's greatest strengths and why he was able to propel himself to the presidency his ability to not only communicate with people but to sort of come across as as a normal guy flaws and all as opposed to a a finely crafted finely tuned politician who has you know looked at 27 polls before they you know put utter out a sentence
0: I mean, there's the real irony. Donald Trump will never spend a dollar in this campaign for a poll for the nomination, not a penny. I mean, he, he didn't he wasn't relying on polls or focus groups or roundtables to tell him what to think. He knew what he thought. And, you know, Hillary Clinton's reliance on polls was such that she always sounded stale and rehearsed. Nothing she said sounded, you know, uh, genuine or spontaneous, which means somebody actually plan that deplorables line, and that person should be shot.
1: Do you think that line sort of helped Trump and helped unite people that already might have sort of, you know, been leaning towards him or maybe had even decent feelings about him? Did something like that, sort of a direct insult on those people, even sort of, you know, gather them more towards Trump?
0: It's elitism is what it is. It's extreme elitism. It's attacking not Trump, but his supporters as if they're not as good as her supporters, as if they're not, as, if they're not loyal Americans, uh, uh, that they're somehow despicable. That, that's really the worst form of elitism. What it shows is that Hillary hates baseball.
1: Now, Roger, Donald Trump flirted with presidential runs a couple of times before, back in 2000, potentially with the Reform Party. And then again in 2012, yes. he sort of put some feelers out there. Why was 2016 the perfect storm for him to actually win the Republican nomination and go on to win the presidency?
0: Well, I was uh, on board for every one of those explorations. I was actually the chairman of his exploratory committee in 2000. Remember the Reform Party automatically got 58 million dollars in federal dollars for their for their candidate and so in essence you could run on OPM other people's money and neither Al Gore nor George W. Bush was letting the world on fire but he concluded at the end that you one needed to be a either Republican or Democrat. There were just too many barriers. You couldn't be certain you would get in the debates and so on. There was awful infighting inside the Reform Party. So, and then 2012, frankly, he came very close to running, closer than people know. In the end, however, I think the reason 2016 was the right year was, first of all, you had no incumbent with the awesome powers of incumbency. And secondarily, uh, the people needed to experience all eight years of barack obama to prepare for you know the election of a complete outsider who had never held public office before
1: the idea there being that you know people that may have begun to tire of obama or just begun to tire of their economic situation that might not have fully set in as much as it did by the time 2016 rolled around yeah,
0: eight eight i mean well i mean eight years of pain is a lot worse than four years of pain
1: there you go simple math now, Roger, you started off as an official advisor to Donald Trump and later left the campaign uh, in this particular go-around, and, and you spent much of your time and effort, even after leaving the campaign, as sort of an, an unofficial advocate for Trump. So why were you so passionate about advocating for, for Donald Trump and his presidency in 2016?
0: Well, the reason I left his campaign had, was not related to any belief that he wasn't the right man to be president, right. and that the time wasn't now. Frankly, I concluded that I could do more From the outside, I produced The Clinton's War on Women, which was widely published, the entire oppo dump that the campaign needed and could never have put together in time. I had uh, spearheaded the famous iconic uh, Clinton rape t-shirt, which Time magazine figured, which is a way to break through the mainstream media blockade that kept wanting to call Bill Clinton's sex crimes indiscretions or infidelities. They are neither. They're violence against women. They should be called what they are. Every one of these women is credible, every one of them. And there are many more who have not come forward. I interviewed many of them for the book. And for those who say, well, that's fine, but Bill's not running, Hillary runs the cover-up. Hillary's the one who hires the private detectives and the mean-ass lawyers to just, you know, uh, to threaten and intimidate and bully these women.
1: And that T-shirt campaign now, that was one where I I think it may have been in coordination with Alex Jones to sort of get people on air or on TV to come out with a a, basically a T-shirt that says Bill Clinton is a rapist. And I think they even got a financial reward from Alex Jones if they were able to get that on air or if they're able to get themselves saying that he's a rapist on air. Is that the one?
0: Actually, actually, it was two tiered. I invented the T-shirt. We debuted it when I was interviewing with InfoWars and Alex said that he would pay one thousand dollars. To anybody who could legally, legally, in other words, you can't crash the set, you can't break in somewhere, you got to jump up and down in the background, but get it on TV. And if you could yell, "Bill Clinton is a rapist," he would pay you an additional five thousand dollars. He paid out two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars.
1: That was his own money that he just put up for that.
0: His, uh, uh, probably his company's money, but
1: yes. So that that uh, that has to be considered a success, because I, I got to say, before I had even heard about the T-shirts, heard about that campaign, I saw people doing that. I saw people I saw clips on YouTube of people shouting Bill Clinton's a rapist. So you, you can't deny that that it was effective in that sense. It got people talking about it again. It got the word out there because for some reason, I mean, I guess Americans have short memories when it comes to a lot of these things. People seem to forget that Bill Clinton was very credibly charged for, by multiple women with, with sexual assault.
0: And I think a lot of people forget that Bill Clinton paid Paula Jones eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars to settle her sexual assault suit against him, a civil suit, when he tried you know, he trapped her in a hotel room demanding oral sex, and he was suspended from the bar in that action. So, you know, this is not a case of uh, everything against him is unproven, which is what his defenders try to say. Oh, those women, they're sluts, you know, they're they're lying. They're paid. This is all nonsense. These I know every one of these women, and they are decent women whose wives, with many cases, their lives have been shattered and destroyed by what Bill and Hillary Clinton did to them.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about, about the effect of the alternative media. I mean, you, you particularly specifically cite Alex Jones in your book as being one of many factors that influenced Trump's victory. But I mean, 10 years ago, if you told me Alex Jones might have an effect on a presidential election, I'd tell you, you were crazy. He's just this fringy guy on the internet spouting conspiracy theories. But here we are in 2016, uh, where it seems that he really has had, I mean, I I certainly wouldn't give him credit fully for the victory of Donald Trump, but there's no doubt that the coverage of Alex Jones and the the, the millions upon millions of people that he is able to reach, uh, it did have an effect on the election. So do you think that we're starting to see a trend here where the narratives of the mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News even, the whole gang; those are starting to kind of crumble, and people are turning to alternative sources, which are in effect going to have much more of an influence on elections.
0: So let me let me address the Alex Jones issue because it's very interesting. Yeah. If one takes those and put aside his political views and his you know and his performance, but I mean he's a phenomena unto himself, to say the least. And yes, he's uh, become a friend. It does not mean that we have identical views on every issue. But he's uh, when it comes to immigration and the, and globalism and the fight for American sovereignty and our freedoms. You know I, I'm with, I'm very good with Alex Jones and he with me. In any event, if you look at those who are watching him live streaming on his sites, actually six different platforms. If you then add those watching him on YouTube Live and Facebook Live, add the podcast to see it later, and add in the 212 simulcasting radio stations where he's on for two hours. His audience is in the millions. In October, it, it can be documented that he was getting from between 11 and 18 million people a day.
1: That's quite a reach.
0: So, I mean, it, it, he's competing, you know, uh, in essence with CNN and Fox. He is not some people's taste, but he has a very, very hardcore loyal following and when he tells them to buy a t-shirt they buy a t-shirt when he tells them to write a letter they write a letter and when he tells them to show up to protest they protest you know they're hardcore libertarian leaning you know conservatives
1: That seems to be a sort of a a key element that sort of uh, these alternative online figures like Alex Jones, like a Milo are able to generate. They're able to generate not just sort of talk and not just page views, but they're able to generate action from their listeners. So when they say something like go and hashtag this thing or go and wear this T-shirt, people out there are going to start acting on it. So they really are able to have a real world effect in ways it seems that the, the mainstream media was really never able to do.
0: No, I mean, really what's happened here is the the advent in, of technology, which has people now getting their news on a handheld device instead of watching on the TV set. So, But if you still want to watch CBS, you've got to go through the Internet to get them on your handheld device. As soon as you enter the Internet, you realize pretty quickly there are better things than CBS, <laughs> and you start watching them. Thus, the alternative media is born. People like the straight-up investigative reporting of, of Breitbart. Alex Jones's people do excellent investigative reporting. People are comparing that to the pap they're getting from the networks and the tired narrative, which for some odd reason always seems to echo either Obama or the Clintons.
1: Is that what this push behind this whole fake news thing is about? Is it really about silencing these alternative organizations that are that are coming up while the mainstream seems to be dying? Is this sort of their, their last gasp, their last attempt to stay relevant? It
0: really is, but it's already boomerang because we can make the case that they're the fake news. We're the real news. That's why they're trying to extinguish us. I mean, really, I was on MSNBC the other night with Ari Melber, who's a very bright fellow. And you know after a spirited discussion he raises the question of calling me a misogynist a racist and a bigot and don't i think that that's one of the biggest problems in the country now i am none of those things i told him that but more importantly what's more dangerous is censorship and tv networks that set themselves up as the arbiter of what can and cannot be said i mean it's just it, it is you know it, it's just it boggles the mind they're in a state of hysteria about the election of Trump that uh, just knows no bounds.
1: Do you think that Trump's victory really caught them off guard? Because I mean, I had an inkling that Trump was really doing something special, doing something unprecedented in politics. And I, part of me really felt he was going to win, but the messaging from the mainstream was so effective that it even made me think, well, they're telling me the polls are just way, way towards Hillary and everyone seems so confident. So maybe Trump really has no chance. And to the point that I I sort of bought that narrative as well. And yet despite that, he obviously the result was completely different. And it seems that they really got caught themselves flat footed and completely flabbergasted uh with their sort of arrogance that their anointed one, Hillary Clinton, didn't actually just sweep away like she like, like they predicted she would.
0: Yeah, I know there's very, very, very deep resentment. I, I think you're absolutely right. The constant bombardment uh of the voters with the you know, with the message the race is over, she's got it locked up, the poll gap is too great he's a buffoon, he's this, he's that, he's a misogynist, and so on. Uh, The attitude, not the vote, because the Trump vote was very intense. They were coming out for him no matter what, he did or said. They were desperate for change. But it did depress your spirits. Donald Trump, I think, said that he told his wife the night before, you know, this looks okay, honey, but we might not win. It even got to him. But the overall truth is, I know two guys who always knew he was going to win. He was one and I was the other. I could see the trend line kind of starting in the middle of the week before the election and he really pours the physical energy on in that two-week period at the end following the poll numbers, you know, uh, to give the lagging places a kick and then to try to get over the top. Campaigns like a like a like a madman, like a whirling dervish. Meanwhile, Hillary is in Chappaqua in her pajamas looking at swatches of fabric to figure out what she wants for the Oval Office curtains.
1: I mean, if the news didn't tell me there was this person named Hillary Clinton running for president, you would never know it because she was never out there campaigning.
0: One of the things that's not in my book, but which I may put into an addendum just to comment on it as a interesting cultural phenomena is the large number of people who, who legitimately believe that she may have used a body double around the time that she was having serious health problems. Now, the Clintons would do just about anything. And interestingly enough, President Lyndon Johnson used a body double frequently. He had a cousin, also named Johnson, who looked amazingly like him. He did not sound like him, but he looked like him. Johnson would also often place him in places when he didn't want people to know his whereabouts, using him as a decoy in some cases, and so on. Unfortunately for the cousin, when he was offered a part in a television show playing playing Lyndon Johnson and he agreed to take it, it was a period in variety. Two days later, somebody showed up at his home and shot him in the face and killed
1: him. Wow. So do you think that Hillary Clinton was using a body double?
0: I have no, I have no idea. I, I, look, I, I see a thousand things posted on it on the net. I haven't had time to read them. I have good friends who who have read it all and insisted it's true. I have other friends who read it all and say they don't buy it. I have no idea. But it just the interest people had in this campaign, it, this was a manifestation of it. I mean, People were saying, oh, look, now, look at her collarbone here. Now look at her collarbone over here. You see that? I'm like, see what? What am I supposed to see? <laughs> it was it was it was a very it was a surreal moment in the campaign but my favorite moment of the campaign without any question Hillary Clinton is in the debate and she says that's why we can't trust a man like Donald Trump to run the US justice department and Trump says because you'd be in jail <laughs> it was the single best moment of the campaign
1: it certainly got a response from the crowd, although he's already sort of backed off and made nice. I mean, do you think he said that to just to really get score political points and get a rise from the crowd, or do you think he ever really intended to go after Hillary Clinton?
0: You know, I think he's going to let the Justice Department decide that. I mean, I really think it's out of his hands in the sense that, and I go into this in my book extensively, as I do the entire Russian agent canard, there is no Russian influence. There is no Russian money. The Russians are not giving the Trump campaign talking points. Trump doesn't have a a relationship with Putin. The irony is that it's Hillary and Podesta who do, who have made and reaped millions out of their relationship with Putin. And they're accusing Trump of being in his pocket. The irony of that is extraordinary.
1: Roger, I want to get a little more into just how libertarians should view Donald Trump in just a minute. But first, I need to take a time out to give a quick word to today's sponsors. Liberty lovers, have you seen our new t-shirt line over at lionsofliberty.store? If you haven't, well, go check them out. But if you have, then you've seen the great design work of my man Dan Smotz of Goulash Media. Dan has been a longtime fan of the Lions of Liberty podcast and credits the show with being a big contributor to his interest in libertarianism and politics in general. Dan is a super talented guy, and he is able to contribute to just about anything creative, whether it's graphic designs like you saw with our t-shirts, whether it's videography, he does weddings and that sort of thing, or audio production. He even did the newest jingle for Letters of Liberty, which you'll hear later in this program. Dan is based out of the Quad Cities area in Illinois, and he's always happy to travel. So if you've got a wedding coming up or any sort of project, video or audio related, I want to highly encourage you to check out Dan Smots and Goulash Media. That's goulash, G-O-U-L-A-S-H, goulashmedia.net or goulashfilms.com. Uh, Roger, when you first appeared back on, on this program back in 2013, you had recently left the Republican Party and had supported Gary Johnson in 2012 in his run for president then. And you had stated that the Republican Party had become just another big government party. You cited you know, their support for the war on drugs, their support for spying on Americans through the NSA. Uh, do you see Donald Trump as someone who represents a return to the old Republican Party, you know, a party that actually would stand up for smaller government? I mean, do did, 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 did you see Donald Trump inspiring some of those ideals that, that really ha- had you originally leaving the Republican Party?
0: He, I'm not going to argue that he's a libertarian, but I am going to argue that on a couple issues, I believe he has libertarian views. And I think those of libertarian views can be appealed to as we confront some of the issues ahead of us. He has been a critic of the war on drugs, for example. Uh, pointing out that it's it's not working it's expensive and and the cost of incarceration and so on. That's a very libertarian position.
1: Does that conflict at all with his appointment of Jeff Sessions as attorney general someone who's been fairly enthusiastic about the war on drugs? That's going to be an interesting question. The other thing will be
0: an interesting question of course is that you know whether or not the administration is going to enforce federal law on marijuana in the some 32 states I believe it is that have some form of legal pot. Now doing so would bankrupt the state of Colorado, literally, and would and would put in, in what is a billion dollar legal state legal industry in this country 220 to 230 thousand people out of work. You know, I, I'm I'm going to believe that Trump, the businessman, will see the 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 folly of this. In all honesty, if the administration really goes ahead and starts busting people who are buying medicinal marijuana from state-sanctioned dispensaries with uh you know the appropriate paperwork from a doctor, the public's relations backlash to that is a disaster. The economics of a disaster, but frankly. At that juncture, a coalition of Republicans and Democrats in the House, liberal Democrats, libertarian Republicans, can probably muster enough votes to legalize it.
1: But you don't get the sense that that, that is a priority of Donald Trump to, to start once again enforcing the, the federal war on drugs and specifically I, against marijuana. I've, I've, never,
0: I've, never hear, I've never heard him discuss it when he was asked about marijuana during the campaign about medicinal marijuana by the states. He said it should be up to the state's. Well, then that, in in essence, is contrary to Sessions' position. So I don't see, you know, that Trump has said anything other than it's up to the states, which is directly contradictory to what Sessions is saying. He's saying the states should not be allowed to sell.
1: How do you think libertarians should view Trump overall without getting into specific issues? I mean, do you think that he's generally going to be a net positive, even though he doesn't necessarily line up with libertarian positions? But, you know, considering the alternatives, do you think that he's going to be a force that could lead to greater liberty for many people in the country?
0: You know, I'm reminded of the the famous Henny Youngman joke when people said to him, how's your wife? And he said, compared to who? (laughs) I mean, let's remember that the alternative was Hillary Clinton. And for anybody who believes in either integrity or small government, that's a disaster. So however Trump is, he will be better than that. He's not going to be ideal. I think you have a fight ahead while the establishment tries to pull him off of his moorings on some of these key issues that inflamed the voters and got him elected. His presidency cannot survive if he doesn't at least begin to deliver on an agenda.
1: Roger, before I let you go, I'm wondering if you could give us maybe a little prediction about the Trump presidency. Do you think that four years from now, Trump will be a a popular president, uh, you know, maybe looking to sail towards re-election, as as most incumbents tend to do, or or do you think we're going to see stronger attempts to challenge him, even possibly from within his own party?
0: Uh, You know, I learned a long time ago after a 40-year career that spanned now 10 presidential campaigns not to answer hypothetical questions. Let me just say I have huge confidence in him, I think he is unestimated, and he has the opportunity to be one of our greatest presidents. The greatest danger is being pulled off your moorings by the establishment, Republicans, and others. whispering in your ear uh, while undermining your policies. You've got to just stick to your guns and remember who elected you, and he could be one of the greats.
1: Well, again, the book is The Making of a President, 2016, How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution. Roger, before I let you go, why don't you just let everybody know everywhere they can find the book, obviously on Amazon. We'll link to it over in the show notes for today's program. And uh, let everybody know where else they can find the rest of your work. And uh, yeah, you can
0: go to the Barnes & Noble stores. You can go to Barnes & Noble online. You go to Amazon online. You can go to RogerStone.com. No D, RogerStone.com. You can go to stonecoldtruth.com, which is my new site that uh, goes with my syndicated radio show, Stone Cold Truth, which is on the Genesis Communications Networks on Saturdays from 1 to 3 Eastern. And will you you be touring for this book as well? Well, I'm in New York. I will do some. I'll go to Los Angeles. I will probably go to Dallas. I may. I'm definitely going to do some other cities in Florida. So the answer is yes. It'll be more limited in the past because I have some other projects like helping make America great again. So, uh, but I'm going to do some promotion. Yes.
1: All right. Well, Roger Stone, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the program and really appreciate you taking the time to write this book and giving us a little inside look at the Trump campaign.
0: Excellent. Many thanks.
1: Thank you, Roger. Take care. All right, folks, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Roger Stone. You know, I just I gotta address something real quick because I don't agree with everything Roger Stone said on this program. I don't agree with everything Roger believes in his entire worldview. In fact, I don't agree with everything most of my guests say at least not on you know every single issue or every single statement. But I try to bring people here who provide an interesting perspective and can provide some insight. And Roger Stone is someone who's been around for 30, 40, 50 years in the political scene, has personal access to Donald Trump. There's no denying that he brings an interesting perspective. And not everybody's going to love his perspective, but I do find it valuable. And the same goes to a lot of other guests I've had on this program. Just last week, I had Kristen Tate on this program, and she basically essentially said that she was an advocate of closed borders until we can get rid of the welfare state. That's a position that a lot of libertarians tend to take. It's not one I agree with, but I didn't really challenge her on that position at all, and there's a reason for that, because I don't challenge my guests on every little thing all of the time. If I did, the show would never end. You know, I usually have a pretty limited time with my guests, and I try to use that time wisely. Uh, I choose where to challenge my guests. Sometimes I don't challenge my guests enough, and I often regret that going back. I mean, I think that's a perfectly Valid complaint at times, but you know, last week when when Kristen made that comment, some people might have heard that and maybe thought that I agree with it just by not challenging her. And I know I, I don't agree with that at all. My views align much more closely with my friend Roger Paxton of the Lava Flow Podcast. And Roger, the very next day after I released my interview with Kristen Tate, put out an entire podcast breaking down the immigration and welfare issue and why libertarians really should be completely in favor of open immigration and certainly shouldn't oppose it because of that welfare issue, I would go into more detail. But hey, that's what Roger has a podcast for. So why don't you go ahead and check out the Lava Flow podcast? I'll link to that specific episode in today's show notes. But at the end of the day, my primary goal with my interviews is to make my guests shine, to help them get their views out there in, in the best way possible. And now there may be points where I feel it's appropriate to follow up or challenge them a little bit more, but I'm not going to do it all the time on every issue, and that was one such case. There are different formats where I'll do that. You know, in our roundtables, that's where you're really going to get a lot more of my personal opinion, uh, in the Lions of Liberty Forum, our free Facebook forum. You can go find that just by searching Lions of Liberty Forum in the Facebook group. These are more of the formats where you're going to get a little more of my personality, a little bit more of my personal views in there, and I'll try to mix them in where I can can, especially like I will do in the segment you're about to hear, because I'm taking another dip into the mailbag to answer some Letters of Liberty. This is the new Letters
0: of Liberty mailbag song. Mark tried to
1: write one himself, but it somehow just felt wrong. So to keep him from further embarrassing all of the lions of
0: liberty free market demanding for better in the form of liberty letters so let's get to it
1: this intro is much too long all right and we're gonna take a dip into the mailbag starting with another question from kyle wagner who wants to know what do you think about jeffrey tucker shouting at richard spencer at is. FLC, the International Students for Liberty Conference. This, of course, took place a couple weeks ago. The video kind of went viral, at least on Facebook. And essentially, uh, Richard Spencer, many people have called him a Nazi. I don't know if he's fully a Nazi. He is a white nationalist, in a sense. He does believe in sort of a... Dividing up the races, I think that he's been pretty open of his view on that, and obviously a lot of libertarians are going to take issue with that, understandably. There are some people associated with the alt-right. He actually believes or he claims to have coined the term alternative right but there's people that there there's some overlap there sometimes between the alt right and libertarians and Richard Spencer has lately made a, somewhat of an effort to insert himself at libertarian events at this particular event he was actually at the hotel bar and sort of set up shop there to have some conversations and answer questions and by all accounts he was doing so in a you know professional manner you know you might not agree with his views but he wasn't there shouting he wasn't doing anything except I I can understand why libertarians like Jeffrey Tucker who is a big part in putting this conference on would not want the views of someone like Richard Spencer to be associated with libertarians but essentially this video shows Jeffrey Tucker confronting Richard Spencer uh, and basically shouting at him shouting him down he's surrounded by a lot of other people who they they ended up sort of forming like a, a circle group that is just screaming and shouting at Richard Spencer, and eventually he leaves. Some people say he chose to leave. Other people say he was, you know, he asked the secu- security to get him out of there. Other people say the hotel kicked him out. Not really clear, but the point is A, I do understand why libertarians would not want to associate with Richard Spencer. At the same time, I think with somebody like Richard Spencer, somebody whose views can sometimes be associated with the right or libertarianism, I, I think it's important not to just shout at them you know not to just shun them in in the way that we see a lot of these quote social justice warriors shouting at Milo Yiannopoulos, or who I really don't associate his views with those of Richard Spencer at all. But I really think it's dangerous when libertarians end up defaulting to that sort of stance, that sort of just shun them, boo, hiss, get out of here stance, as opposed to having the intellectual discussion. Now I understand Jeffrey Tucker didn't expect Richard Spencer to be there, was probably upset when he found out he was, and, and Jeffrey Tucker in many ways used to be a lot of what Richard Spencer is. I'm not saying Jeffrey Tucker had the same racial views, but he was was much more associated with the right, the right end of libertarianism back in the day and has since uh, very much rejected that. So I can see why for him it's even more of an affront to have something that he has completely rejected uh, associated with this conference. But at the same time, it's it's really, I think, an awful visual for libertarians, for libertarians to be the ones seen as shouting down Richard Spencer. Now, that that kind of went viral, but it went viral because of the confrontational nature of it. It went viral because it was someone screaming and yelling and a big crowd screaming and yelling, and that gets attention. Well, now you've just given Richard Spencer more attention. I've seen a bunch of libertarian podcasts, including me right now, talking about Richard Spencer since this incident. So didn't he really get what he wanted then, which was more attention? And, and I think the way to uh, confront these views is to not hide from them and shun them, but to confront them directly, to have a conversation, even if that conversation is with Richard Spencer, which you might also say is, is, you know, giving him a platform in a sense. But guess what? The views are out there. Richard Spencer has a platform. OK, so you have two choices at that point. You can scream and yell and yell. Or you can confront the views intellectually. That's what we're trying to do. That's what I try to do with this podcast. Trying to raise the bar. Get away from the shouting, the screaming, the yelling. Not that we don't do our share of that at times. But bring things to an intellectual discussion. Have a rational conversation with somebody. Maybe you'll find out he has some good points. I'm not saying he does. <laughs> but Dave Smith, I mean, Dave Smith of the part of the problem. had a, He had guest hosted the Gavin McInnes show and he had Richard Spencer on. He had a conversation with him. He didn't scream and yell and shout. And again, I understand the, the circumstances at the hotel were a bit different. But overall, that is a tactic we need to take with people we disagree with, even if we find their views completely abhorrent. We have to address them intellectually and not just shout at them. Now, don't become that which we can't stand because <laughs> then we're just going to keep losing. I've got another question here from Stephen Rose. And Stephen asks, how can the CIA be defunded or abolished? Well, Stephen, I got to be honest, it's a pretty simple answer. Congress. Passes a law or votes to defund or abolish them. <laughs> That's really simple. But to do that, well, you got to have congressmen who want to do that. You're not going to have congressmen who want to do that until you have an American public who wants to do that. Until you have an American public that starts to understand that, in many ways, the CIA is a part of the deep state, the unelected government. We see right now the intelligence agencies are, are very openly at war with the current administration. Regardless of your feelings about Donald Trump, I certainly don't agree with most of his policies. It's pretty clear to me that there's a deeper element in our government associated with the intelligence agencies who are not fans of him. They're not fans of the fact that he was able to become president as opposed to someone more friendly to the kind of machinations they would be doing. Someone like Hillary Clinton, for example. But at the end of the day, we're not going to see the massive changes in our government that we think should happen until... At least a decent number of the populace, or at least the politically active segment of the populace, agrees with us. So if you want the CIA abolished, I think you should probably spend your time focusing on it (laughs) or bring that topic up to people. It's not going to happen overnight. It might not even happen in our lifetimes. That's the frustrating thing about the ideas of liberty or really using political platforms to try to shape our, our nation or shape our laws or what have you, is that it takes time. It takes time to pass laws. It takes time to repeal laws. It takes way, way more time to change the ideas and the philosophy of a population. That's what takes the grind. That's why we do this three days a week. That's why there's not a day that goes by that I don't spend talking about the ideas of liberty or doing something for this website or our podcast to get these ideas out here. It's going to take time. I might not even see the full fruits in my lifetime. (laughs) But I think in many ways we will. The CIA being abolished might not be one of them. But, yeah, maybe the war on drugs loosens up. Maybe it ends all together. That's stuff that I think we can see really change in our lifetime. So, as with everything, Stephen, I think you just really got to focus on the long game and maybe, sadly, accept the fact that, you know, in the next four years, you're probably not going to see the CIA abolished. And that's going to do it for Letters of Liberty this week. I am saving up a bunch because next week I'm going to dedicate an entire episode. We're going to do a classic Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor Roundtable and we're going to answer Letters of Liberty. So be sure to head over to the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. I post a weekly thread asking for Letters of Liberty over there. You can just go in your search bar, type Lions of Liberty Forum, and join up if you haven't already. You can also email me, markmarc, at lionsofliberty.com, or tweet to us, at Lions of Liberty. I'll take Letters of Liberty that way as well. However you want to get it to me, it's cool. And before we sign off here today, I just want to give a little shout-out to a couple new members of of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our support group, people that are contributing to this podcast every single month. We got a new sign-up with William Wells this week, way out there in Alaska, right in the middle of the ocean. He's on this crazy little island that I never knew existed until I I found out about William Wells. Uh, We found out trying to ship him a T-shirt because anybody that signs up at the $10 or level or higher will get one free T-shirt. If you sign up at the $25 or level higher, you get two free T-shirts and all those levels get a free coup As well. Now, I want to give a special shout out to another guy, Daniel Lee. He is the first guy to sign up at the $25 a month level. That is so huge. We really appreciate the support, Daniel. We appreciate the support from all of you, even if you're just listening to the show and not sending us any money. That's fine too. Even just listening, clicking, sharing the show, telling your friends about it, those are really the ways you can help without spending a dime. You can leave us a five star review on iTunes. Lots of ways you can help us if you don't have the funds to chip in or just don't feel like it. I get it. We all have things we want to contribute to in life and we can't give to everything. But I do appreciate those of you that have joined the Lions of Liberty Pride and are contributing to us each and every month. And people like Daniel that sign up at that $25 level, you're going to be able to participate in a monthly conference call with myself, Brian McWilliams, John Odermet, maybe some special guests now and again, where we'll talk about our plans for the show. You get to have a little bit of a behind the scenes look at things, hear about our plans for the coming weeks and months and really contribute, you know, give your opinion. You can actually become sort of a a part of the process of creating this show because we really do create these programs, all the programs we do here at Lions of Liberty for you guys to help advance the conversation about the ideas of liberty. We really do appreciate all the support. We even appreciate the haters because everyone needs some haters to motivate them a little in life. So even if you hate the show, you're hearing my voice now. You must be listening for a reason. So to all of you, tune in this Wednesday for Electric Liberty Land. Friday for Felony Friday. Until then, folks, live long and live free.